Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Ravenel's accused of helping his client, a drug dealer and others, in a criminal conspiracy. He literally bought, I'm not exaggerating, he literally bought another briefcase. This was a major league drug trafficking case. This wasn't small local, this was nationwide. He's like, oh, no, no, don't joke about that. Because I think, you know, that was their initial inclination of the U.S. Attorney's Office was somebody from this case had something to do with Jonathan not showing up. Well, come on. No one with a fucking pen knife? Come on. Ain't nobody buying that bullshit. This is Episode 7 of Season 3, NACO of Nazareth. I'm your host, David Payne. The federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? You, I'm a crook. You a crook. He a crook. Everybody a crook in prison. It's been five months since I started my research into Jonathan Luna's death, and I was hopelessly stuck in a honeypot of conflicting theories. I had tracked down the actors in the so-called missing money case, and the explosive claims by NACO that maybe his lawyer had taken the money, and that maybe Jonathan got caught up in it, and maybe that led to his death, were waking me up in the middle of the night. Although the court system was not going to give them their due, and while I would typically discount them as well, I needed to know more about NACO to judge his and their credibility. And so I'm going to need to ask you for some rope here as we take a slight detour this episode. See if you can strip away your preconceptions of the bank robber label as you assess the full measure of this man. For unlike Ken Ravenel, Nico Brown is not searching for character references from the brothers around him. He seeks his from a father above. My name is Doyle Lee. I'm from... Lexington, Kentucky. I just turned 49 years old on April the 27th. My grandfather was a prominent pastor here. Doyle Lee is a second-generation PK, a pastor's kid, and one of several people I talked to about NACO. Well, I can tell you that I would have to consider him more than a friend. I actually reference him as my spiritual father. Tell me about the first time you met him and how that came about. I don't know if you know the dynamics of entering into a new prison facility, but I had transferred in and I wanted to attach myself to the church. And so in prison, of course, you know, it's different type of sex. I mean, you got your gangs and you got your homies and you got your racisms and different things going on. But I wanted to be a part of the church. So I was told that, you know, we got a guy on the compound, you know, you need to meet. 
I first talked to you yesterday or the day before, and I brought up Nico's name, you had a very visceral reaction. I'm almost incapable of putting it into words how God has been able to use one person to be able to change atmosphere, change culture. This is the thing that really had impressed me. I, again, I grew up around the church my whole life, but he actually, through God's help, gave me something that I could give to somebody else that could help them apply to their current situation, to themselves, and see change begin to come. And like I mentioned, change has to be Lee's reverence for his friend and spiritual mentor was born of hardscrabble circumstances and a shared set of bad choices. I uh, grew up with a basketball background slash religious background. I went on to play college basketball out in New Mexico at the New Mexico Military Institute. Didn't like it there. As a result, quit school, came home, ended up having a child. And at that point, began to dab into the criminal lifestyle, drug dealing. Went to prison in 1998 for 10 years. Came out trying to do the right thing. And then recidivated in 2010. And at that point, after sentencing, I was sent to prison in Welch, West Virginia. And this is where I met Nako Brown. And, you know, one of the things about... And that meeting would be transformational for Lee. And what Nako was able to introduce me to when it came to change is change had to be centered around a set of principles that come from the kingdom of God. And that when we acknowledge those principles and begin to apply those principles, then you can get the fruits and the results of changing. So you grew up in the church, so you had that church background, but for whatever reason, it didn't stick with you as a young man. What was it about what he did that kind of turned the switch? What he was able to do was connect the dots. I knew that there was something missing. Not that I didn't believe, but there was something missing. And he was able to help me address what was going on internally. As a matter of fact, I thank God for Nako. And had I not met him, I would probably still be chasing my tail like a dog. And if it were just Lee that Nako had talked into going down a different path, that would be something. Although perhaps not all that spectacular. But as I would learn, Nako created a spiritual development program that he rolled out in every facility he served time in. I've often talked about how he mentored me, but to see the impact that he's had on men that were unchurched and how he was able to help us become free because no one had ever told us, and I remember him saying this and I'm quoting him here, that you could be free on the outside of prison but still be locked up on the inside. And so, God gave him a curriculum, and he absolutely showed me how to become free on the inside. And we began to spiritually develop these men, and the administration came to him. And the administrative staff began to see results in the men that he was teaching and mentoring. As a matter of fact, to the point where the Bureau of Prisons adopted the curriculum and made it a part of their transitional courses and 
almost over about 2,000 men has graduated from this program. And I mean, you're talking about changing a whole compound. According to Lee, NACO's spiritual development program wasn't just aimed at people ready to hear the good book, nor was it merely empty words. And if you could just see how impactful that NACO was, I seen countless lives change. I seen, you know, men who had not been in contact with family members, things begin to be reestablished. I seen supernatural healing take place for the men there. And I've seen so many miraculous things happen in the court system. The list goes on and on and on. And it wasn't just the inmates who felt the influence of Nako Brown. When we was at the facility in West Virginia, it just so happened we were waiting on a warden to come there. And when the warden did arrive there and she seen Nako, she stopped what she was doing and told the chaplaincy to get with him. Get with this guy right here. Whatever he has to say, follow what he said. And so I've seen over and over again during times of gang violence when the tension was high that the administration would come to have him to talk to maybe the heads of gangs. The auditoriums when NACO would speak would be wall to wall. I'm talking about from every culture, white, Hispanic, the gang members, the Aryans, the Muslims and and radical, every facet of group would come. I'm talking about former real life mob figures would sit down and talk with this man and he would be able to enlighten. Now I can almost hear some of you rolling your eyes, thinking that Doyle Lee's testimony about NACO is a little over the top. And it's frankly natural to employ a skeptic's ear to his story. But remember this, the people in the federal prison system are likely far more skeptical than you will ever be. Something another one of NACO's fellow inmates, Antonio Espy, reminded me of in a way that only Espy could. Because, hey, man, everybody had their eye on him to see, hey, is this really a, a man of God? You know, I'm trying to see any hiccups. We looking for it. We in prison now. I, I, shoot, I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. So we trying to see, okay, what's your angle here, brother? What's really going on? But he had none. He had no angle whatsoever. You know, it was all about God. Like Doyle Lee, Espy's path to prison was a predictable one, given his circumstances and choices. But his path out, following his interactions with Nako Brown, was anything but. See, no one actually knows the point of a, of a man's life uh, other than the man. Can't nobody tell this story better than him. And, you know, it, even though I tell you, you know, how my life was when I met Nako, the story behind that, though. Now, me coming from the streets, selling drugs, robbery, doing pretty much anything and everything on the street. Now, the whole time understanding that while I'm going through this, man, I'm sending my family through hell and high water. Because I'm married, I have children, so I'm selling drugs, and then I'm out there robbing people, then I still have to come home. Now, I'm going to bring all that that I done did in them streets to my house. So my family is in danger. Little did they know when we go order groceries, I got a gun on me because I done did so much dirt in the street. Man, ain't no telling when somebody's going to want their revenge while I'm with my family. 
So when I say, by the time God said, you know what, I'm going to send you to prison, and I got somebody that's going to give you some relief, going to father you and going to train you in the area that you need to be trained in, man, that was right on time. Now I'm a minister. I'm a minister and I preach at a church. Did I see it back then? Did Joseph see it back then? No, I had to go through the storm. I had to go through the fire. And what God did in the fire was, hey, burn everything off of me that needed to be burned off of me. So therefore, when I came out, I was shot from the prison to the palace. Antonio Espy's transformation from a doubting Thomas drug dealer to a praise the Lord preacher didn't happen overnight. But looking back on it now, he believes that meeting Nako was all preordained. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. You know, when I met him, it was a time in my life where, you know, I was really trying to transition on trying to get my life better, right? And something happened before I actually got to prison. I was looking at a term of 30 to life. You know what I'm saying? That's before I went to trial or anything. And I'm inside of a bar. A guy came up to me when I was shooting pool. And the guy stopped in front of me. He held up seven fingers. And he told me, he said, God told me to tell you seven years. And I was like, what? He told me, he repeated it. God told me to tell you seven years. And so I just bust out crying and started hugging the guy. Now, mind you now, I'm looking at 30 to life. So I ended up going to trial, being hard-headed. I took it all the way to trial, and I ended up getting 17 and a half years. So fast forward. I get locked up in 2002. When I meet Nako, it's 2009, that's seven years. And I told him the story. And he was like, hey, well, we, it's not by chance that we meet. And I'm telling him, this is my seventh year. And I'm telling him, well, I'm getting ready to get out of jail. I'm going to get out of prison. He was saying, hey, that ain't what God had for me. I realized on down the road, the reason I met Nako, it wasn't that I was going to get out physically, but I was going to get free spiritually. And Nako just happened to be the individual that God allowed me to meet at my seventh year. And for those of you who know your Bible, you know that seven years has historical significance in the story of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph was the youngest and favorite son of a wealthy Jewish farmer who was sold into slavery by his brothers and later rose to power as the Egyptian king's right hand. And that has significance because of what else I need to tell you about Nako. In addition to his prison ministry that has mentored over 2,000 men, he is a prolific writer. The author of 15 books, including several about none other than Joseph. I want to ask you, since you did some of the teaching, when you learned the story about Joseph interpreting the dreams of the seven-year famine and feast, what you were thinking? Oh, man. It's amazing when I finally read the book. Because he gave it to me one time to read, and I was like, ah, it's all right. But then, because everything happens in a season. It wasn't my season to understand it. But then when I picked it up, and then I started reading it more carefully, man, it opened my eyes to understand because he calls us the Joseph generation. He talked about he got a book called The Joseph Generation for which you are talking about. And that book talks about having a dream. We all have dreams. 
The only way it can be fulfilled is you have to go through trial and error. So when we began to learn about Joseph, man, God told Joseph about a dream. But before Joseph could really understand his dream, he had to be stripped. The first thing he was stripped of was his coat. That represents pride. The second thing he was stripped of was his shirt. So that story allowed me to understand that, man, I'm part of a Joseph generation. But understanding my situation is just like Joseph. God is just stripping things away from me that I may go from prison to a palace. So therefore, I was ready when I came to the free world because I was already free on the inside. And like Joseph before him, Nako would seem to slip the bonds of his chains and rise to power within his prison system. Here's the thing that got me. Because people would look at Nako and be like, man, what, you got keys to the prison? And he actually did have keys to the prison, spiritually. He had the prison so prayed up that he could walk through the doors. Officers would open up the door for him and we'll be like, God, man, how you do that? But not understanding, that's how powerful this man was. They would set Nako in the worst places, even when it was a race riot in prison. If the violence was bad inside of a prison, by the time Nako got done with it, it wasn't. Through his prayer, through his presence, I'm 100% sure, I'm, no, I'm 110% sure that God places Nako where he wanted to place him at to bring the peace, you know what I'm saying, between whatever situation is going on. And I was wondering, if God was placing Nako in position to solve a murder, a man who wore a scarlet letter for bank robbery, but who clearly had something more going on. When did you realize that he was somebody different and somebody that you wanted to learn from? That took a minute. Because before I actually met him, I was watching him. And I was like, man, what is this brother doing? But it finally dawned on me when I finally seen something happen one day, when I finally seen somebody going off on him and how he held his composure, somebody was pretty much cussing him out. I'm talking about letting him have it. And you know, it, it was pretty rough on him because I bleed a sweat star running down his head. <laughs> and I'm looking at him and I'm really trying to see how he gonna react to the situation. We in prison. You know, you don't let nobody talk to you in just any kind of way. I don't care you, you're a man of God or whatever. Somebody's going to get some reaction out of you one way or another. No, not Nako. Man, he, he handled the situation real nice, smoothly, and godly. And I said, okay, you serious. If you can stand firm on what this guy is giving you and you still talking about God, because I would have been like, look, God, hold up. Hold up for a minute, God. Let me go and handle this business, and then i get back with you. But hey. <laughs> He stood his post, you know, and hey, I respect him for that. I was watching him, you know what I'm saying, from a distance. Nako's ability to stand his ground and turn the other cheek in the most difficult of circumstances found footing, of course, in another biblical figure. And like the King of Kings, Nako would need to prepare his followers for life without him. I remember Nako getting ready to leave because it was like 12 of us that we sit at a table, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like Jesus and the 12 disciples. He was getting ready to go, and we had our final meeting. Everybody going to say their goodbyes. Woo, if you'd have been a fly on the wall, every man in there, we crying and sobbing like our daddy getting ready to leave us. He just told us that he got to go. Man, we was crying like babies. That's how much we loved him. And it shocked me because he said I was going to take over. 
And of course, it's always hard to walk in another man's shoes, especially when these men I was talking to had such different life experiences than me. So as I sought to learn more about Nako Brown, I needed to find a pair of shoes that knew his world, but which trod a civilian path. My name is Sarah Wells. I'm the executive director at Friends in Need Health Center in Kingsport, Tennessee. I've been with, as a minister with... The Sarah Wells is a Methodist minister who first came in contact with Nako's family 15 years ago after one of his many prison transfers. And one of the things I haven't yet told you about Nako is that despite his circumstances, he has remained married to his wife of 26 years, Vanessa. And together, they have successfully raised their two children through his incarceration. The mother and the children came to us through Interfaith Hospitality Network. And they asked me again if I could help her to get a job. Just happened to have one open in our breakfast and lunch feeding program. And so I hired her to run that, which was a perfect fit. Through their work together, Wells and Vanessa Brown slowly came to gain each other's trust and respect. Vanessa was extremely quiet. She didn't want to talk, very withdrawn. So immediately, I had a feeling more than likely, you know, her husband was indeed incarcerated. At that time, she didn't say those words. What she told me was that he was not there. She was still married and very much in love with her husband and that her family was simply doing everything that it could in order to continue on until he could be back with them again. Her children were just absolutely out of this world. Everything was yes, ma'am, yes, sir. They were dressed to a T. She wanted them to look their best, feel their best, and be their best. I finally gained her trust, and she began to open up, and I asked her, where is your husband? And she finally told me that he was incarcerated, and as I began letting her know that that didn't matter to me, but what could I do to help her? She explained to me each time he was moved, she moved to where he was so the children in particular could continue on to be taught by their father. It sounds like she really became a friend to you. Yes, she did. I did feel like, you know, God had given me a family member, a sister to walk with. And uh, she began to share with me about the case and where she was fighting. I remember speaking with her pastor, and he said that he had never seen anybody be so faithful in such hard times. Somebody would give her $10. She would make sure to give not one, but two. One to tithes and one for her faith offering. As Wells became closer to Vanessa and her children, like me, she found herself trying to figure out Nico Brown. After the relationship grew, she told me that her husband did want to talk with me if I would agree to that. And I said, most certainly. And what he gave glory to, first of all, was to God for being able to minister to the men that were in the prison. The workers, many of them, you know, truly respected him because I, I know the ones that were here in our area did indeed respect him for his faith and they did trust and believe in him. 
One of the things we were talking about at that time was that when released, I planned for him to come and work in our ministry. This is something that I really wanted to ask you about because you work in prison ministry. And I think you had mentioned to me something that I felt too at the first time when I talked with NACO is a sense of skepticism when you go into these types of conversations and relationships around whether this person is the real deal, whether they're just telling you something to get an advantage or help their personal situation. And I wonder if you can talk me through that journey that you had in your conversations with Mako. In the beginning, I was, you're always skeptical about, you know, how truthful are they being? Is he just trying to get out? Well, you know, he never said I didn't do. He didn't try to defend himself in any way. He simply tried to state facts. And as I began to hear him answer, and I read the books that he had already written, I began to feel that he was the real deal. I felt like I could trust and listen to what he was saying. And yes, he did finally win me over to the fact that I would trust him to be in our ministry. Given their interactions, it was inevitable, of course, that the circumstances of NACO's case and Jonathan Luna's murder would come to the foreground. The main thing that he stressed was the violation of the contamination of the trial, the uh, fact that he could not get information from the FBI, where they did the investigation and then they would not release the evidence thereof. And then, of course, we spoke more about what happened when the money went missing and that it should have been thrown out for at least a new trial. But I knew for a fact that they wouldn't release to him what the outcome of the investigation as to where the money went. The fact that when it was in court to begin with, he said that the attorney that just was arrested in 2020 stated that everything was in evidence and all the paperwork was signed. And then, of course, as we know, the other gentleman, Mr. Luna, was murdered. It just felt like it was all corrupted. The attorney that you referenced that was NACO's attorney was also the attorney on the last case that Jonathan Luna was trying when he was murdered. And now that he's been arrested was showing that he supposedly has been accused of having a relationship with a kingpin. That all makes sense. There was a Jobsian quality to his journey after his conviction. Just defeat after defeat after defeat. NACO had worked hard to get them to hear that in the court system, and they kept denying it. He felt if they would investigate that more, that that would help in the case to find out who murdered Mr. Luna. Did you talk to him about that? Yes. He was like this brick wall. (laughs) And I don't care what it was, he wasn't going to give up. I've never seen two people be so tenacious in my life. He knew somebody was going to listen. I think what's fascinating to me is even though it was defeat after defeat and it's been 20 years, his faith in life, his faith in God, his faith in all of these things doesn't seem to have wavered. Even though they were denied, it didn't stop them. They felt like there was sooner or later someone going to hear their voice and be the voice for them. 
That's what both of their lives were wrapped around. There will be justice for Nico Brown. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. As spring turned to summer in 2020, and as the first major COVID surge started cutting its brutal path through our nation's prisons, I started to wonder whether Nako Brown would even survive to find the justice he sought. But my doubting Thomas met its match in Nako's faithful disciples, Doyle Lee and Antonio Espy. Here is a telltale reference, and you can go and look this up yourself. Do you know there's an outbreak of the coronavirus in the prisons that nobody's talking about? Family members are not able to communicate. Of course, it is a security risk for even them to tell their family members that they are at hospitals. You know that, right? Oh, I did not know that. That's what's going on? And the way the prison is designed, say if somebody gets sick, you go to a sick call and they'll send you back to a unit where it's impossible to socially distance yourself, okay? Yep. I sadly have to say this, that my father passed away from the virus the day before my birthday, April the 26th. He was in ICU for two weeks. My mother was in ICU as well on the 10th floor of the University of Kentucky Medical Facility. When my mother got out three weeks ago, I went to re- get her out of, out of there. It was 25 men in the prison with the COVID virus, 60 on the way, another 100 more coming in out here at the Federal Medical Center in Lexington. But I say all that to say this, I'm gonna tell you about the glory of God on this man's life, right? There are no coronavirus at the facility that he's at right now. Wow. No one. He's been praying over that place. I could tell you again, man, I've seen signs and wonders because you know, I'm gonna tell you, I was a hard headed one. I was probably the hard case. I was wondering where God was. I believed in him, but I was wondering where he was. And I've seen rainbows happen. I've seen different stuff happen. I've seen God use Brother Brown to do some amazing stuff, man. Like, you cannot deny that the power of God moves through him. Now, what you need to ask, Nico, how many don't call the coronavirus where he at? I guarantee you it's lesser than anywhere else. I guarantee you that. <laughs> And I ain't even talked to him. And I bet you, because I know him. He's praying and he got the whole compound covered. You know, so I'm I'm guaranteeing that God got Nako down there for a reason, praying and keeping everyone covered. And the COVID-19 has not affected the prison like it may have affected other ones. And the thing is, as hard as it is to believe, they were right. When I spoke with Lee and Espy in late May, There were no reported cases of COVID at NACO's prison in Victorville, California. And NACO knew where to give credit. Okay, you there, NACO? I'm here, yes. Excellent, excellent. All right, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I'm doing good. Like I said, uh, there's no breakout here. Just taking it one day at a time, you know? All glory to God. Definitely you get the glory. But Nako's praying and faith couldn't help stave off the Grim Reaper everywhere. Four weeks after Doyle Lee lost his father, Nako would lose his as well. 
and in all this death, hope, and redemption, as we turn our attention back to the courtroom when the money got stolen, I was wondering whether we might receive our own divine intervention to help us solve this case. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. It would take an awful lot to persuade me that Jonathan was involved in the disappearance of that money. I told him, I said, I'll put it in the trial prep room and I'll lock the door. And he had the keys so he could get in. I locked the door and I left. This sticks in my mind. He wouldn't take a lie detector test. He was the one that grabbed the uh, money. I mean, I just, there was no doubt in my mind about that. I'm sure the consensus was that people believed that the money went missing because of Jonathan. But it always did bug me that it was the FBI office in Baltimore conducting this investigation. There goes the devil telling me to lie again. But tears I'm around me says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry, but I just want you to love even more money